Rabbi Lewis joining us tonight. Um, as most of you know, Rabbi Lewis is the director of the music program at uh, REITs at YU. Rabbi Lewis also has a very successful shul in the five towns. Um, but the other thing about Rabbi Lewis, which uh, apparently somebody told him already, I didn't know, is that um, you know, many people think this is his first time here in Rabbi Lewis. But the truth is that he's really here basically every day because if you walk around and you see anybody listening to the shir, more likely than not, it's Rabbi Lewis on the, on the other end. So it's our, it's our honor to have you here live for the first time live here in our, uh, in our baby drash. So no further ado, please, Rabbi Lewis. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I have to say, it's so it's such a chizuk to see so many people learning Torah here. I was able to get a little bit of a tour of the building and see the Batei Midrash uh, downstairs and then on the uh, mid-level and up here. And there's so much Torah learning. It's really wonderful. You should continue to grow in your learning as individuals and as a community, Bezrat Hashem, for many, many years. Um, one of the... Uh, it was, it was a bit of a discussion what we should talk about tonight, right? What the topic should be. So uh, what we decided in the end um, is that uh, I'll just share with you, because whenever I can't decide a topic, I always just uh, share uh, questions that people asked me recently. And uh, I'll share like three questions. And you'll tell me which one you want to talk about. And that way it's not my fault if you don't like it, because you're the one that chose the topic, right? Okay, sounds good. So uh, the following are three questions that people ask me over the course of the last week or so. So uh, question number one, someone, uh, someone told me that uh, he's approaching his fifth wedding anniversary. They're married five years, and he's interested in getting his wife a gift for their fifth wedding anniversary. So would you believe that you call your rabbi to find out what to get your wife for a gift for the fifth wedding anniversary? No, but it wasn't just that. It's that someone suggested to him, you know, if you're struggling with what kind of thing to buy, there are guidelines for this. And he said, guidelines? What kind of guidelines are there for this? Well, they said, well, you know, 25th is like a silver anniversary, and 50th is a gold anniversary. The fifth wedding anniversary is a wood anniversary. So you should buy like a, a stender or a, 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 but you should, you should buy something, uh, something made out of wood because that's what you're supposed to do on the fifth wedding anniversary. It's the wooden anniversary. And he started to think to himself, well, wait a second, is that... Is that a Jewish thing? Is that, uh, where does that come from? That there's a particular type of item that you're supposed to get each year? And, and if it's not a Jewish thing, is it a violation of what would the potential is be? Darkei Amari, Chukas right? Is it a violation of Chukas yeah, so, uh, so, so that's, uh, so that's Shiloh number one. He wanted to know if he's allowed to buy such a thing. A, uh, a second Shiloh that, uh, that, that I got this week, uh, someone sent me the following. I'll, I'll read it to you as he sent it to me. Hi, Rabbi Leibowitz. My daughter has a female dog, and for many years she has requested of me to get her dog spayed. Are you familiar with what getting a dog spayed means? Yes? No? So, someone who, who said yes want to explain it. Someone who said no, um, neutered, right? Meaning when you have a dog, by show of hands, how many people have dogs? Oh, good, this is my kind of crap. <laughs> I, I hate dogs. So, uh, the, uh, so if, if you uh, if you have a dog, uh, if you don't get it taken care of, it uh, if you don't get its reproductive organs. Um, removed, cut, whatever, something, you know, something done to it, uh, the, the dog tends to get very aggressive, it can get ill, and uh, therefore, if you own a dog, you, you sort of have to do this with a dog. Uh, what's the problem with doing this? What's the problem with getting a dog neutered? 
So there is a there's a pasuk in the Torah, a little problem. There's a pasuk in the Torah that says that you're not allowed to neuter an animal or a human. So uh, so it's like a little problem. So uh, so this female dog needs to get spayed. So he writes, I have until now resisted though because of halacha concerns. Most dog owners I find, or many dog owners in the from community, are totally unaware that there are these halachas. That there's this pasuk in the Torah that says that you're not allowed to do these things. But this fellow is very well aware, and therefore he says, whenever my daughter asked me to get her dog spayed, I always, uh, I always said no, that uh, we're not going to do it. So every time she goes to the vet, she is warned that the dog will potentially become very ill if she's not spayed soon. We have given her hormone shots, but that is not a long-term solution. I'm very concerned that if something were to happen to the dog because of this issue, it would very much negatively affect her. Affect who? The daughter, right. I, was, I had to read that twice. Right? <laughs> Meaning, obviously, it would negatively affect the dog, but also negatively affect the daughter. She is an at-risk 17-year-old and has struggled with different aspects of Yiddishkeit over the years. So imagine you have a young teenager who is already struggling with, uh, with Judaism, is having a difficult time with some of the elements of, uh, of Judaism, and then the religious father says, you can't have your dog spayed, and that's why your dog is going to get ill, and you're going to have to watch as your dog gets sick, and it's all whose fault? Not your father's fault, it's God's fault. It's, it's uh, Judaism's fault. So this is going to be terrible for her if, uh, if that's what they have to do. In addition, her biological father passed away when she was four years old, and it's something she still deals with at times. Meaning she's had a rough, a rough time in life. Things haven't been easy for her. Please let me know what is the halachic path that we can follow on this issue. So that is Shaila number two. Shaila number three. Um, I, this one I got from uh, a... Uh, well, I could say, I think I could say who's from. This is what I got from my, my brother. Uh, my brother is a Rav in uh, a place called uh, San Jose, California. Anyone here ever been to San Jose, California? No. You've been, yeah. So uh, San Jose, California is a lovely part of the country. Um, and uh, my brother is a, is a Rosh Kolel in Palo Alto, which is a neighboring city to San Jose. And he's a Rav of Ashul in San Jose. My brother, by far, is... Uh, is the Talmud Chacham of the family. He is uh, he's someone who really, really uh, knows how to learn, and uh, and is a big posek. He paskins, uh, you know, all the the mikvah shailas that they have over there, and the eruv shailas, and everything. He does all the uh, the the, uh, um, the, uh, the the gittin, and uh, and and, he does, and I think he's involved in gerus and all sorts of. He doesn't do so much gerus. He doesn't like doing gerus, but all, all sorts of uh, of different uh, different types of issues. Um, so <laughs> thank you. So uh, so so uh, so my my brother sent sent the following uh, the following shot. My brother's name, by the way, is Rabbi Leibowitz. Um, so he sent he sent the following uh, the following on a WhatsApp. Um, a guy who was recently divorced and visiting from out of town came over and asked, uh, and he puts in quotes, "My DNA father is a Kohen. Should I tell the Gabbai that I'm a Kohen to get the first Aliyah and start doing Birchas Kohanim?" That was what the fellow asked. So imagine you're in shul and someone walks over to you and says, "My DNA father is a kohen." So first of all, who talks like that? My DNA father, like, uh, what, what do you normally say? 
my, my father, right? Abba Shali, right? My, my DNA father is a, so he said, my DNA father is a Kohen. Uh, so should I tell the Gabbai that I'm a Kohen so that I can get the first Aliyah? What, what a strange way to ask the question. So my brother was smart enough to say, uh, I'll, I'll continue reading. I said, wait a minute, what's your story? <laughs> Meaning, obviously there's more to the story. So he basically told me that his mother was married three times. And in the middle of the second marriage, he was born, presumably to the man that she was married to at that time. And that's what he always assumed. It turns out that it was always a question whether his father was the second husband or the third husband. Because there were some suspicions in the second marriage. second marriage didn't last very long, and uh, she ended up marrying somebody, right? And the third husband was a Kohen. A DNA test confirmed that the Kohen, third husband, was his father. Uh, he said there are no mamzer issues. This fellow said right away, don't worry, I'm not a mamzer. Why, why is right away you have to question whether he's a mamzer? Because, what say? No, no, meaning why, why does he, why, why would you think that, that this guy might be a mamzer? Right, meaning if uh, not out of wedlock, out of wedlock wouldn't make it a mamzer. Out of wedlock just means single. It means she was married to another guy when she had a child with this Kohen. So forget about being a Kohen. Like this is the spectrum of the Mishnah. The Mishnah describes like the levels of Yichus, right? So there's Kohen, Levi, Israel, and it goes on and on, right? And the bottom of the, the, the last guy on the list is the mamzer. That's why the Mishnah says the great Chidush that Afilu mamzer Chacham kodim the Kohen Gadol that being a Tamil Chacham is so important that even a Mamzer is a Tamil Chacham would come before uh, Kohen Gadol is an Ama Aretz. But uh, Mamzer is like the low, the low man on the list in terms of Yichus. And a Mamzer is not allowed to marry a regular uh, Jewish girl. A Mamzer has to marry either only uh, Mamzeres or uh, Giyores. So he's not allowed to marry Bekal Hashem. So, uh, but the fellow says, the fellow told my brother, don't worry, I'm not a Mamzer. Because... My mother never had chuppah v'kiddushin with any of her marriages. She was, meaning she was not religious, so she never had a religious ceremony. She only got married in secular, in secular law. What? Oh, so one second, we're not done yet. He then said, this is my brother writing, he then said that his rabbi, who lives in uh, another neighboring community there, asked a shaila for him to someone, and the psak was that he is a Kohen and not a Mamzer. When I asked who the rabbi was that the Shiloh was asked to, he said someone named Rabbi Leibowitz. And then I remembered, the story sounds familiar. <laughs> so my brother apparently was involved at an earlier stage without realizing, but now this fellow presented himself to him. So uh, I asked about his mother ever being with a non-Jewish man before he was born, and he assured me that he looked into it, and the answer was no, his mother was never with a non-Jewish man before he was born. Uh, as weird as this is, is he, am I correct? Is he a Kohen? That's my brother's question. Meaning the choices over here, what are the choices of what this fellow might be? Right? He might be a mamzer, which is the worst case scenario. You never want to make anybody a mamzer. Uh, he might be a kohen, which is fantastic. That's the greatest yichos a person could have. Or, are there any other options? He might be a chalal, right? He might be a non-kohen. Why would he be a chalal? How could a person be a non-kohen and a non-mamzer? 
right? I would think he's one or the other, right? He's either a mamzer because his mother was married when his Kohen father uh, sired him. Is that a word we use for uh, humans? Whatever. When, uh, when, his, uh, when his Kohen father, I know it from the Lion King. I don't know if it's something we use for humans. But uh, when, when his Kohen father uh, impregnated his, his, uh, his, his mother, so either his mother was married, in which case he's a mamzer, or his mother was not married, in which case he's a Kohen. So, so why is there, is there a third option? What would you say, what's the third option? Ah, she's a zona. So the halacha is, a Kohen is not allowed to marry a zona. So if a Kohen marries a zona, then the baby is not going to be a Kohen. The baby is going to be a chalom. Right? If a Kohen marries a zona. What is a zona? So that's an important question to ask over here. We define zona, for our purposes, as uh, anyone who is nivala lepasola. That the, she has been with someone who she would not be allowed to marry. So if she had been with a non-Jewish man, then that would make her a zona. Having uh, been with a man out of wedlock does not make her a zona, even though we might think it should. It does not make her a zona. Only being nivala lepasula. And this, you know, you have to get very complicated shilas because that, 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 that would be true even in the most saddest, uh, most unfortunate situations where it's not the girl's fault at all. Uh, there are situations where a man is ma'anes a woman, um, and, uh, and, and the man that uh, attacks the woman is a non-Jew, and now that woman is not going to be allowed to marry a Kohen. Right? You have questions like this. My brother once had a, shayla, a question of that nature also, where a woman was walking somewhere in Israel, and she was attacked late at night, and uh, someone was ma'anesir, someone took advantage of her, and they never caught the guy. So they don't know who it was. And now she was dating a Kohen a couple of years later. And there was a question whether she's allowed to marry a Kohen. Because you assume, when it happens in Israel, what do you assume? Do you assume it's a Jew or a non-Jew? What would, you, what would you say? What would you say? Right. What? Where in, Where in Israel? Gan Saker. Uh, so why would you say Jew? Why would you say Jew? Rove. Rove are Jewish. So, what? Ah, so, so Shechter said, Rove people are Jewish, but you got to ask the police, are Rove rapists Jewish? And if Rove the rapists are Arabs and they're not Jewish... Then, uh, then, then you'd have that rove. You, you need trey ruby, whatever. It's a, it's a complicated uh, shayla. In fact, in, I think, I think there's a tshuva to my brother on this topic in Minchas Asher Chelik Aleph. In the tshuva, I think Rav Asher Weiss wrote a tshuva to my brother on. I think on this, on this topic. There's definitely a tshuva to my brother in there, but I think it was on, it was on, on this, uh, on this topic. So anyway, so that's shayla number three. So uh, shayla number one. Anyone remember it anymore? It's been a while. Shayla number one was what? The wooden anniversary, right? Can you take your stender from Shul and say, here, honey, happy fifth anniversary, better luck on the 25th. Um, Shaila number two was, uh, was what? Spaying the, uh, the female dog with a girl that uh, would be devastated if you, don't, if you don't. And Shaila number three is the Kohen who might be a mamzer or the mamzer might be a Kohen, right? Okay, so uh, we're going to do this, I guess, by a show of hands. Is that okay? That's a little vote. All those who prefer Shaila number one with the wooden anniversary... <laughs> All those who prefer Shaila number two with the spaying of the dog. Ooh, okay. We have a quote vote. Okay, and all those who prefer Shaila number three with the Korean mums and mums are What do we say? Which which one won? Three? <laughs> we're here all night. Uh, what, what time do we go to live from God? What's 9.45? The next hour is at 9.45. 
945 is in a long time from now, so we're gonna we're gonna stop before then. Normally, I give these shiurim for like I don't know 30, 40 minutes, but you know, and we can leave time for questions and answers. I, I guess about this or anything else. What? Nothing about. Okay, so uh, so let's get started. I guess on that question. So what's the first? Whenever you have a complicated question, and, and by the way, these are not the kinds of questions that people like me answer, right? This has to go up the ladder. This goes to people who are serious, Tamidei Chachamim, and very established Tamidei Chachamim. This relates to the yichus of the Jewish people. You can't take these questions lightly, right? The yichus of Klal Yisrael is very, very important. We don't take these things lightly. This has to be brought to the most significant Tamidei Chachamim. Having said that, I have not spoken to any of my rebbeim about this question yet, so we're just going to explore the halach of my brother is a serious Salachacham, and I'm sure he dealt with it. We're going to discuss Good. So, what, what do we look at? What do we have to figure out over here? I mean, what's the first question you have to ask when you're looking at this guy? This guy comes over to you and he says, I'm either a Kohen or a Mamzer. Which one do you think? Or, or, or a Chalo. Which one do you think it is? What's the first thing we need to verify? What's that? Oh, okay, so that, that may not be the first thing, but that's certainly something we would have to, we'd have to verify. Meaning, he said, I know who my father is. Why? Because there's a DNA test. Is that enough? Meaning, if, a, if someone comes in and says, I took a DNA test and it says that I'm a Kohen, do you give him the first Aliyah? Do you let him do Birch HaKohanim? What does it take to prove Kuhuna? So we're definitely going to gonna have to discuss that. What does it take to prove Kuhuna? Because that, that by the way, just to, to give a little bit of, a, you know, to touch upon it before we get into it, that, that's a shayla that comes up all the time. What does it take to prove Kuhuna? A lot of times you have a person who... You know, when people come from a religious background, it's very easy. Uh, because my father and my grandfather, they all did Birchat Kohanim, and they all, uh, they all got the first Aliyah. So I know, I know that I come from a Kohen. But very often there are people that there were a couple of generations in the family where people were not observant. So how are you going to prove that they're a Kohen? What do you think they look at when they need to prove if somebody's a Kohen? So gravestone is one of the things they look at. It's almost always on a gravestone of a Kohen, they'll have hands, or they'll, they will say HaKohen, one or the other, or both. Um, in fact, there was someone in my shul who's a Kohen, he is a Kohen, and his, uh, his mother had passed away, and he wanted, when he was doing the gravestone, he wanted to put hands on the gravestone, uh, because he said he, want, he feels it's symbolic of the fact that he's like giving a Birchat Kohanim to his mother. That, uh, that he and his father and all the generations of his family, that that's what the hands represent to him. So I said, it's probably not the right thing to do because that's not really what hands represent on the gravestone. It doesn't represent that somebody is receiving Birchat Kohanim. It represents that somebody was a Kohen. So, so probably you don't want to mess with that tradition because once it doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean anymore, if too many people start doing that and, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, after 120 years when his, uh, when his friend passes away, he might want to do the same thing and say, I'm blessing my friend with Perchat Kohanim, that could really mess things up. So with the mother, it's not really going to mess anything up because she's a woman, no one's going to think that she's a Kohen anyway because it doesn't, the Kuna doesn't pass through the woman, the Kuna passes through, through the, uh, the men, but Still, I didn't think it was it was it was appropriate to do that. So they'll say Hakohen. It will have the hands on the. Uh, what else? What what else is an indication of? Oh, okay, well, we'll get to that also. But even just proving Kohuna, proving Kohuna, that's an important point. 
Uh, so there is some sort of Kohen gene, right? So does that count for anything? I don't know if we're going to get into that, but it's an important question. They say that there's a gene that Dafka passes through the father only, and, uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's a Kohen gene that they think they found. What about a last name? Are there any last names that are that automatically you think Kohen? Katz. What does Katz stand for? Kohen Sadek. What else? Kohen. What does Kohen stand for? Right. What is Kohanim? Right. Uh, the wonderful Talmud Kohanim. So uh, what does what, uh, what does Kohanim stand for? Right. That's Kohanim. There's even uh, there was a famous comedian who passed away this week who comes from a famous Kohen family. Uh, Jackie Mason, his name isn't Mason, his name was, uh, was Meza. Uh, Meza is uh, Mem Zayin Aleph Hey. So it's Mizera Aron Kohen. That's where the name Meza comes from. It's a, it's a very Hashiva Kohen family, very rabbinic family. They all uh, were Rabbanim except for the one comedian. Really? Italian last name that's almond? That are Kohanim. Okay. Like Shkedim? Like it's, they're Kohanim. Wow. That's a, so I'm sure in different communities. They have, so is that enough? I once met a rabbi who told me uh, his last name was Katz. And he said, my name is Katz, but I'm a Cholo. I'm not a Kohen. So uh, I was like, okay. He said, yep, my grandfather uh, was a Kohen, married a divorced woman, had my father, and therefore we're a family of, uh, of Chalalim. I don't think his grandfather knew any better, uh, and, uh, and, and therefore he's, he has the last name Katz, but he's, he's a Chalal. He said that when he was in yeshiva, one of the rabbis used to say, you're a walking minchas chinuch, meaning uh, like uh, he's, he's, uh, he's not a Kohen, he's a Chalal, you know, whatever. So, uh, so, okay, so that's an issue that we have to deal with. How do you prove kuhuna? What else do we have to deal with, aside from proving kuhuna? Oh, were the marriages legitimate or not? Was she actually married to any of her three husbands? And by the way, what's the better answer for this guy? Right, he's hoping for a no, right? He's hoping that his mother was not married to any of her three husbands because if she was married, then he's a mamzer. If she was married to husband number two, then he would be a mamzer if he was a child of husband number three, right? And it would have been a spectacularly bad idea for him to have gotten that DNA test in the first place. Because if he doesn't get the DNA test, then we would be allowed to assume, well, even so, if the first husband was, it wouldn't have helped. If the first marriage was a marriage, then he's done. It doesn't matter whether it was the second husband or the third husband that, uh, that is his father. So it wouldn't even uh, make a difference, right? Because uh, she, never got, she never received a get from any of her husbands. So if the marriage counts as a marriage, there was no divorce. The divorce doesn't count as a divorce because there was never a get. That's why it's so important. I often get uh, the question, someone will ask, you know, if someone who's totally, uh, I just got an email a couple of weeks ago, someone said, there's someone who, uh, it was a strange one, they did a wedding during COVID on a front lawn, but they didn't do Chubba Vikidushin. They just say they didn't have a rabbi, they didn't have two kosher aidin, they didn't have, uh, they didn't do, uh, they, they just did a wedding. It was a non-religious couple, and they just did a wedding. And now it's a year later, or a year and a half later, however much later it is, and now they want to do a proper wedding. Um, they've already been living together for a year, but now they want to do a, a proper wedding. So this fellow asked me, should he do a proper chuppah v'kidushin? So it's risky. It's risky to do a chuppah v'kidushin. Why? Why is it risky? 70% of marriages in this country, 
thank God, not in the Jewish community, uh, you know, yet, and it should never get to that point. But seventy percent of marriages in this country end in divorce, and there's a good chance that they're not going to know to give a get. And if they don't give a get, and then she gets remarried and has children, then the children are all going to be mamzerim. So uh, it's it's a risky thing. So I said you should. Uh, I, I do believe they're entitled to get married. Meaning you can't say, oh, because I don't trust that you're going to give a get, I don't, we're not going to let you get married. You can't tell someone not to be married, halachically. But what you can do is you can sit down with a chatan v'kala, you sit down with them and you say, listen, you should live together in happiness and health for 120 years and beyond, you know, uh, all of that. You should say all of the nice things. But if something were to happen and it doesn't work out, you must, 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 uh, do a proper get. Here's my card. Here's the number. You have to call. Here's the number of the basin. You have to. You have to make sure you get a proper get. So, uh, so I think that that's the proper approach. I don't think you could tell people not to get married, but uh, you can tell them in advance that if they're going to get married, that there's a responsibility in getting married. That if they're going to get married Jewishly, then the only way to undo the marriage has to be done properly in a in a Jewish kind of way. I was once uh, asked. I have a neighbor who lives across the street from me who's a retired conservative rabbi. So uh, he is the nicest fellow, very nice man. I once went into his house and he has like pictures with the Pope and with a, he was like a very important conservative rabbi. So uh, he, 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 uh, he told me that his daughter was getting married and he would like for me to be an aide kiddushin at the wedding, to be one of the witnesses at the wedding. So I said, who's the other witness? And he said, another rabbi that's a friend of his that happens to be an Orthodox person. Right? The other rabbi. I know the other rabbi. He's an Orthodox person. So, uh, so the question was, should I be an aide at the wedding? I wasn't sure if it was going to be a two-ring ceremony or just a one-ring. I wasn't sure what was going to happen at this wedding. It happens I've been, I was in Israel uh, shortly after he asked the question. Uh, and I saw Rav Yitzhak Zilberstein, um, who is the son-in-law of Rav Yashiv. The Colonel of Racha. And Zilberstein is a very big posek in uh, in Israel. And I asked him what he thought. They said, "Should I should I be an aide?" He said, "Of course you should. They have a right to be married. Why shouldn't they be married?" I said, "But it might be a double ring ceremony. And if it's a double ring ceremony, Rav Moshe is not convinced that that's a valid uh, wedding ceremony at all. Rav Moshe Feinstein was not convinced that that even works." So he said, no, we don't pass that. Meaning he doesn't pass them like Rav Moshe on that. It means Rav Yashiv didn't pass. He said, uh, no, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's lo na'im, but it's, uh, but it's okay. They'll be married. So you should either have a right to be married, you should be a witness, you should be an aide. So I said, so, okay. I, I actually accepted. I was an aide at, at the wedding. And uh, the, the, the father of the Kala was the Masada Kiddushin. And uh, the other witness was a good friend of the father of the Kala. So he was a little more aggressive than I was. So uh, the father of the Kala, under the chuppah, said to the chatan, uh, can you take out the ring? And he takes out the ring. Then he says to the Kala, and can you take out the ring? And the other aide says to the father of the Kala, no, no, tell her to put it away. She can give it to him later. And he's like, okay, uh, put it away. You'll give it to him later. And that was it. Like, that's all. The, like, he just needs someone to tell him not to do that. And I, Like, on the spot. And, and he just didn't do that. And he gave the ring later. A man can wear a ring. There's nothing wrong with a woman giving her husband a gift of a, of a ring. But you're not supposed, that's not an act of kiddushin. So you don't do that. You don't do that under the chuppah. Well, questions, yeah? Yeah, so there's no halachic issue with a man having a ring or with a woman giving a gift as a ring, but if she believes and he believes that that's what's making the marriage, it means that they're not having proper das 
for Kiddushin, because Kiddushin is Hare'at Mukudeshat Li. It's not, and sometimes in, in some of the conservative reform, they'll, they'll actually make a phrase, Hare'ata Mukudash Li, or something like that. You know, and, and it doesn't mean anything, it lacks any significance, but if they think that's what makes the wedding, then it could be there was never Das for Kiddushin in the first place. So we always, so in in very from conservative uh, uh, circles, um, which you know is a funny term, but in in, in very from because what they'll they'll often uh, say if you listen carefully, if it's a very uh, uh, you know right wing conservative rabbi, he'll say um, the 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 groom is going to uh, give the bride a ring through which he will betroth the bride, and the bride as a token of her love will give as a gift a ring to the uh, to the groom. Meaning they'll they'll say it like that to make it clear in the wording that the that the ring is not uh, part of the part of the act of Kiddushin. Oh, so that's also an issue. Let's say you know a woman is not going to observe Tarat Tamishpatha. So she's not going to go to the mikvah. So can you are you allowed to uh, to 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 make a wedding for them if uh, if you know that she's not going to because but w- with without uh, to for for them to be together is an isukaris if uh, it's a very severe prohibition if she doesn't go to the mikvah. So by facilitating that, it could be a violation of the fe'ifer. But I don't think we're going to touch on that because that's not really the shaila that my brother was asked. Right, so that's why the first issue, if they were never... No, no. You have that problem anyway. You're not making it any worse. Nachon, right. Right, right. But let, let's, let's... I keep telling stories, so we keep distracting from what the original question was. Let's go back to the original question, right? The question was... This fellow comes, his mother was married three times, maybe yes, maybe no, we're not sure exactly what she was. She thinks she was married three times. He was born during the second marriage from the third husband, who happened to have been a Cohen, right? Got it, follow? Yeah. So the, uh, so the, the, the question is, uh, we said a couple of questions. First of all, how do you prove kuhuna? Well, what's enough to prove that, the, that, that there's a Cohen, especially if someone was not observant, was not totally observant? Second of all, is she married or is she not married? And I think those are the two big ones, right? Are there any other questions that we need to really deal with? Oh, good. So that's that's the issue. Was she married or was she not married? So this was a big machlokas between Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav Henkin, Zechrono Levracha. Rav Henkin was, uh, he, he somehow, historically, he doesn't really get the credit that he deserves. He was like the big posik in America before Rav Moshe came along. It's, it's almost like unfortunate, because he was a really big posik. And whenever you ask anyone, who is Rav Henkin? They'll say, before Rav Moshe, he was uh, the big posik. It's almost like he's, he has to be defined by, you know, by, by the person that came, that came before him. It's almost like, uh, or the person that came after him. It's almost like Rav Avram Ben Arambam. Rav Avram Ben Arambam was a big Talmachacham, but he's always just going to be Rav Avram Ben Arambam, right? That's what happens when the Rambam's your dad, I guess. You know, you know, the, so, uh, so, so Rav is always just going to be, he's always, he was the one before Rav Moshe, but he was a big, big, significant post So there was a major machlokas about a civil marriage and a reform marriage. If you get legally married or you get married with a reform rabbi, so most of the times, in, if you do a search in Igor 
with Moshe and you look for Rav Henkin's name, most of the times that he quotes Rav Henkin, it was about this issue. Because this was a huge machlokas between them. The, the basic background is that the Mishnah, first Mishnah Masechus Kiddushin tells us that a Jewish marriage is created through Kesef, Shtar, or Bia. Right? There are three ways to get married. A man has to give a woman either Kesef, or we give Shava Kesef, which is a ring, right? We always give a ring. Shtar, he could decide not to give Kesef, but to give a Shtar, which we don't do. Or Bia, or they could be intimate together with the shame Kiddushin, for the sake of, uh, of marriage. Uh, that's not the yeshiva's thing to do, right? The Gemara says, so we, uh, we do kesef, we do shava kesef. And that's why, under the chuppah, the Masada Kiddushan will say, do you have the ring, right? He's not going to ask, do you have a shtar, or he's not going to suggest that uh, you do kiddush bia. So uh, civil marriage ceremonies have no religious substance whatsoever, and, uh, the, uh, and, and there's no religious uh, intent either. It's just to be civilly married. The Mishnah in Mesechah's Gitin, on Daf Pei Aleph Amar Aleph, talks about a Hamagarish Ishto Valana Ima Bipundaki. Imagine a couple gets divorced, and then they stay in the same home together again. A Biyichud. They stay alone together after their divorce. Someone just asked me a shayla this week, actually. Maybe a topic for a different shir. fellow told me that uh, his relatives, uh, um, his in-laws got divorced uh, after 30 years of marriage. And then uh, a couple of years later, they got back together again. Beautiful story, right? They got back together again. But they figured, we've been married for 30 years already. So they just moved in back together again after they're already divorced. So he's like, you know, if you're going to be, I mean, this is great, we're so happy for you, but if, if you're going to be together, you, you need to get married again. Like, what are you talking about? We've been married for 30 years. No, but you gave a get two years ago, so you're not, you're not married anymore. So the, uh, the, the, the uh, I mean, it's a viola- even assuming there's no intimacy, it's a violation of yichud. It can't be, so uh, the Mishnah says, if a man is megaris es ishto, he divorces his wife, but then they stay together alone in the same house, Basilil says they're married. That's it. They don't need to get. They are married. Why are they married? Because we assume that they they got together the shame kiddushin. You could do kiddushin bia. So that's what they did. They got they got uh, uh, they, they they got together the shame kiddushin. And the Gemara explains that this is based on two assumptions. How do I know that they had bia? No one watched. No one saw. How do I know that they uh, that they were intimate with each other? So assumption number one: hein hein ichud, hein hein bia. If we know that they've been alone together in a house, that's good enough. Then we know that's the same as Adibia. You're never going to do better than that in terms of Adibia. And second of all, once you know that they had Bia, how do I know that it was Hashem Kiddushin? Because there's a Chazaka, Ein Adam Osa Bi Ilaso, Bi Ilasnus. That if a person is having Bia and they can have a choice of this will either be for marriage or it's just going to be Znus, so we automatically assume that they'll want to do it. It could either be a mitzvah or an Avera. So if it's the same act and it could be a mitzvah or an Avera, let it be a mitzvah, let it be Kiddushin. So we assume that they actually get married when they're together. So the halachic issue about civil marriage depends on whether apply to a civil, a civil marriage. So why would you say yes, why would you say no? Which of these chazakos is questionable? The second, why? Ah, meaning... You're going to say that that they would never do it for they would never have this relationship uh, for Znus? 
what about like their whole lives? <laughs> Meaning, what, they, 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 they've been living together beforehand. How can you say they're not having a BS nose? They, uh, that's, that's the way they live. The, and, and, and even if it's not, even if about them, we don't have a track record necessarily. But, but in today's society, is that still a chazaka? Is that still so clear? Is that still so obvious that you could say about everybody that they know the most of especially people who don't even bother getting religiously married? Those kinds of people typically wouldn't mind having a BS nose. They're not. You can't have a chazak about such people. So this is a major discussion. I don't want to go through the the, the whole issue, but the, it, it all hinges or largely hinges on the chuvas harivash. Um, where the Rivash says that doesn't apply to people who don't observe Tarah Why not? Because if you're not observing Tarah then you're violating an Esukaris every time. So you're going to say that there's a Chazaka they don't want to do an Avera with their Bia? Yeah, they're doing an Avera with every single Bia and a bad Avera, an Esukaris. So you can't say to people who don't observe Tarah That's the Rivash. So based on this, what Moshe Feinstein said, that uh, civil marriages are not a marriage. And uh, he writes in the tshuva, in Igros Moshe of Nezer that if the people who had only civil marriage are halachically observant, then they would require a get, because they know those will be lost and But if they're not halachically observant, which clearly, clearly, clearly in this case they were not, then the most will be lost and Rav Hankin went nuts about this. He thought that this is a destructive tshuva, it's going to ruin the Yichus HaKlal Yisrael. It's uh, really just absolutely terrible. And he published his uh, response in uh, his Sefer, Perusha Ibra. And he says, if they wanted to be married, then every intimate act that they have as a married couple, when they believe themselves to be a married couple, that's Kiddushin. Really, what, what they're arguing about, if we break it down, is, is what creates Kiddushin. Is it the intention to have a permanent, loyal, monogamous relationship between these two people? Or is it to have a marriage according to Jewish law? If it's that uh, just committing to each other, a monogamous relationship is Kiddushin, so then what? Then Rav is right, then they have Kiddushin over here. But if it's to be married according to Jewish law, then Rav Moshe is right. They're not, they have no intention to be married according to Jewish law. So you don't, you don't really have that. So that's really the Machlokas. And it got, you know, Rav Moshe, Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav Hankin loved each other. They respected each other a great deal, and they would never write negative things about each other. But they really thought that this was, this was going to affect the whole yichus of the Jewish people. So they, they wrote kind of, uh, you know, kind of strongly. Rav Hankin wrote, when he, when he wrote strongly against Rav Moshe, he says, he says, he says, it, it pains me, I have special pain, that I might be causing pain to the great Gon of Moshe Feinstein by writing this. But this is Melechet Shemayim, it's what I have to do. And Rav Moshe wrote back similarly, he also... Uh, um, then Rav Hankin, as, as, as the conversation continued, his, his language got a little stronger. He, you know, he, he wrote, He says, My hairs stand up on end for when I hear these, uh, this psakalacha. 
He says, what, you need a Mesaver Kiddushin? You don't need a Mesaver Kiddushin to, to be married. But people often think that you can't be married. There's a, 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 even an expression in the English language that people will say, oh, who married you? You know, they'll meet a couple. Who married you? What does that mean, who married you? What do they mean to ask? Who is the rabbi? Who is the Mesaver Kiddushin? Mesaver Kiddushin didn't marry you. The, the, the man married the woman, and the woman became married to the man, right? There is no... Masada Kiddushin, he's Masadar. He makes sure that everything works out, that everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing, but that they're marrying each other. You know, there's even a discussion, I don't know, you got, I don't know what, what, what's done in this community, but there are many different minhagim uh, as to which way the, the chasna kala face under the chuppah. Do they face the crowd? Do they face away from the crowd? Rasalvechik has an unusual uh, opinion that they face Mizrach, which sometimes means like if like there was a wedding going on in here, it, you know, obviously well in the shul, I assume that's mizrach. But sometimes it would just be like you know to a corner somewhere <laughs> that, that, that they're both facing. So it's like not good for pictures. You know, the photographer would absolutely nix that. But when, so one of the opinions is that they should face the crowd. Rafutner thought they should face the crowd and not face the back, not have their backs to the crowd. Why? So Rafutner thought if they face the crowd, then the Masaryk Kiddushin will have his back to the crowd. But if they face, with their backs to the crowd, the Masaryk Kiddushin will be facing the crowd. And that will give the impression that he's making them married. Anyone here ever watch television? No. But on television, they sometimes show weddings, and they say at the end, at the end of the wedding, I now pronounce you, pronounce you Okay, so you do watch television. Okay, so I now, <laughs> I now... I assume you're not going to non-Jewish weddings. I now pronounce you man and wife. We don't do that. We don't pronounce anyone man and wife. Someone told me, one of uh, my wife's teachers told me that she, uh, that, that one of her students once asked a question in class um, that on TV, when they do a wedding, they always ask, if anyone here has any objections, speak now or forever hold your peace. How come we don't do that at Jewish weddings? <laughs> that would be a terrible idea to do at, uh, at Jewish weddings. There's a mother-in-law at every Jewish wedding. So it's a terrible, terrible idea too. It would be a terrible idea to do at Jewish weddings. But uh, so we don't we don't do that. But we also don't do. I now pronounce you man and wife. That's not something we do because it's not the Masada Kiddushin doesn't really matter. But anyway, this is a major machlokas between Rav Moshe and Rav Hankin. In fact, at Rav Moshe's funeral, I don't remember which of the speakers. It might have been Rabbi Tendler or it might have been Rav Nissen. Alpert, one of this, one of the Maspidim at Ramosha's funeral uh, said, when they were talking about the greatness of Ramosha, they spoke about this psaq. Because you know how many hundreds of mamzerim he saved? Because there were a lot of people that got married civilly and then never received a get and then got remarried and had children. And all of those children, according to Rav Hankin, are mamzerim. And by Rav Moshe signing his name to this tshuva, he was matir all of these, all of these children. So he saved, with one psak, one stroke of his pen, he saved hundreds of people, maybe thousands, from being mamzerim. That's the koach of a posek hador, that he's able to do that. It might have been Rabbi Nisnal, but Rabbi Nisnal was a Talmud of Rav Moshe, was like the leading Talmud of Rav Moshe. He was dying of lung cancer uh, by the time Rav Moshe died. He died one month later, after Rav Moshe. He pushed himself with the, every last bit of kalach that he had to be able to go to Rav Moshe's funeral, to be able to say a hesped for, uh, for Rav Moshe. It's, a real, um, it's interesting to see sometimes. I, you know, I always uh, <coughs> thought it would be like an interesting topic to like look at Gedola Yisrael with their last bits of energy. Like, when, they have, when they know that... You know, a lot of times you deal with Gedola Torah 
and you see them when they're very active. And when they're very active, they do an impossible amount. Right? In this community, you have Rabbi Chaim. Rabbi Chaim does everything. Right? If they're, he does, he's just involved in everything. It's just an impossible amount. And Gedolei Torah tend to be like that. Rav Shechter does so much. When, when people are very, very weak, and very much at the end, they really have to conserve their strength. And like, it's so interesting to see like, what they use that, that last bit of koach for. Rav Nissen Alpert used it to say a hesped for Rav Moshe Feinstein. Right? Uh, and Rav Pam, Zechrona Levracha, Rav Shivan used it to speak at a shuvu uh, reception, at a fundraiser for shuvu to, for Russian uh, uh, children to educate them in Torah. And because that was his life, that was the most important thing. They did a video over Tishbab of Rav Pam and uh, Rav Matasio Solomon, the great Mashkiach from Lakewood, spoke on the video and he said that when Rav Pam was pulled out of his hospital bed and an ambulance pulled up and they rolled him out to speak at that last Shuvu reception just a short while before he died, Rav Matsyo Salman said, my blood was boiling. Who schlepped a Gadol Hadar out of his hospital to speak at a fundraiser? He said, my blood was boiling until he discovered that they tried everything they could to get him to stay in the hospital. But he absolutely refused. He said, I must go. The children need me to go. I must go. His last bits of energy. Right? So it's just um, a fa- that's a side note. But just a fascinating topic. Like, well, what do Kedole Torah, what do they do with their last bits of energy when they have those eyes? It seems like that would be, that would be a nice... Uh, Speech I would like to go here, you know, or a book to read about uh, stories of Gedolei Torah at the very end, what they use the last bits of energy for. But anyway, we still didn't get to the main topic, which I, okay, I'm going to cut it short. But Kohanim nowadays, how do we prove Kohuna nowadays in order to let someone to let someone do it? So is anyone really a Kohen? Do we know for sure that anybody's a Kohen? So the Rambam writes in uh, in Hilchos that all of our Kohanim right today are bechazaka to be Kohanim. What does he mean bechazaka to be Kohanim? We don't really know. Meaning, even if their last name is Katz, they might be a Chalal. Even if their last name is Kohen, we don't really know. So we have a Chazaka. So what does Chazaka mean? Does that mean we treat them like a Suffolk Kohen? Or does that mean we treat them like a Vadai Kohen? So this is a major Machlokas. The Mabit and his son, the Maharit, assume that we treat them as a Vadai Kohen. Now, when the Rambam says Chazaka, he means Chazaka like it's absolute knowledge that even in our times, anybody whose family has been assumed to be Kohanim without any objection, without anyone saying that maybe they're not, we assume that they're Kohanim B'Torah's Vadai, and the proof is, anyone here ever been to a Pityon Aben? Anyone here ever become a son who is Nifta? Right, so you have, you have Pityon Aben. What do they do with the Pityon Aben? You need to be potted with a Kohen. You need to have a Kohen. So, did you ever see someone who uh, tries to do it like a hundred times just in case someone's on a coin? Very rare. I think in Meister Rabbit says the Vilna Gon did that. that. Every time the Vilna Gon met a coin, he said, oh, let me get some silver coins here, and he put it at them every, uh, every time, just in case, because maybe the first coin wasn't a real coin. But that's not, most people don't do that. That's a very unusual thing. The halacha doesn't require that. We assume the Torah's Vadai that everybody's a coin. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of the Akronim suggested, no, that everyone is only a Safi Kohen. And one of the Rayas, one of the, the greatest proofs to that, is that we don't give Chala to a Kohen. 
Now, in Eretz Yisrael, you can't give challah to a Kohen anyway, because the Kohen is Taneh. But in Chutzlar, it's where challah, Frashat challah, is not supposed to be, everybody, if, if you were to ask, uh, you know, all of us, what do you do with the challah when you separate the challah? First of all, if you know that there is such a din, right? That you separate the challah. So what do you do? Oh, you say all sorts of tefillot. And, uh, no, no, no. What, what do you do with the challah? Oh, you burn it in the oven. You let it burn in the oven. That's not really the halacha. That's what we have to do because we can't do what you're supposed to do with it. What are you supposed to do with it? You give it to a kohen. It's truma. It goes to a kohen. And in chutzlar, where it's only drabban, you actually can give it to a kohen as long as you're confident that the kohen is not a balkari. How can you be confident that a kohen is not a balkari if he's eight years old? Today's daf You can be confident that he's not a balkari. But we don't do that. I'm saying the Ramah, right? I'm, I'm speaking the wrong place. The Ramah says not to give it to a guy. You actually get it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I am so, uh, you know, entrenched in the Ramah. Yeah, it's a Ramah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, that's embarrassing. So the, but, but that's, the, <laughs> that's one of the proofs that they, uh, that they, that they, that they bring, um, is that, uh, is that Ramah, at least for Ashkenazi, for Ashkenazi Jews. What about giving honor to a Kohen? You have to honor a Kohen, right? That's also halacha. Uh, there's a mitzvah vikidashto, uh, that, uh, so what does vikidashto mean? The Kohen always has to get preference. He has to be the first one to say the bracha, the first one, if there's one, uh, delicious dessert left and, uh, not enough for everybody. So the Kohen goes first. The coin goes before everybody else. Can you imagine if, like, in schools and camp, like they would do like that? That uh, you know they'd have to prioritize. Okay, whoever's a coin, you uh, you automatically come first. So, is there still such a mitzvah nowadays? So, the Magen Avram writes in the Sadr Shulchanach that most of the time people don't really follow Vikidasha. You know, when we do it for Alios uh, to the Torah, unless there's a greater Talmud Chacham. Right, that's, uh, but even uh, nowadays, when there is a greater Talmud Chacham, we still give the coin first because otherwise it would cause too much machlokas. Except for by Ravadi Yosef, Ravadi Yosef, he always got the first Aliyah because no one was going to argue, no one was going to say, ah, I don't know if he's really the biggest Talmud. He was the biggest Talmud Chacham. Someone pointed out to me he knew more Torah. Ravadi Yosef knew more Torah than any human being in the history of the world. So how can you say that? How can you say such a thing? Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Kiva Eger, right? How can you say? Because the Torah keeps growing. Uh, people keep writing more Sfarim. And he read all of them. <laughs> and photographic memory. So, so in, uh, quantitatively, the amount of Torah that he knew probably is more than... So no one was going to argue in those cases. I never davened that as minion, but they tell me that it is minion in his apartment that, they, uh, that, that he would get the first study and Rabbi Chaim gets first aliyah here. Yeah, so uh, so that's really the halacha. In most places, you know, so it's, uh, it would cause uh, arguments uh, if uh, they were to decide to give to the big son of Chacham. This topic, well, why did you keep about Koyen when Iran and he saw that they were selling the Koyen? Yeah. So because of all these doubts, now, that, right, all we're talking about is chazaka. That's when everybody was religious and everyone was doing the right thing all along. What about when people weren't doing the right thing all along? So then you have a real problem. Now, we're not going to get into all of the details and how this comes up. When it comes to, uh, to, to Birchat Kohanim, and this is just the final thing we'll deal with, if today's Kohanim are not Vadai Kohanim, how can we let them do Birchat Kohanim? Meaning, after all, it would be Two problems. First of all, a non kohen is not allowed to do berachat kohanim, and second of all, what's the other problem? Berachal v'atala, right? It would be a chashash berachal v'atala. You say seven berachas So it would be two uh, two problems. So the base of Rayim as a tshuva 
where he writes that the suffix over kuhuna nowadays is the reason why in Chutz Laaretz Ashkenazim don't do Birchat Kohanim every day. Um, it's not a great answer, though. Right? Meaning the halach is to do like the Sephardim, right? To do Birchat Kohanim every day. So it's one of the most difficult minhagim to explain. Why in Chutz Laaretz Ashkenazim don't do Birchat Kohanim? There are many Ashkenazi Gidolim when they come to Chutz Laaretz. You know this? They dive in at Sephardi shuls. Because then why should they miss out on Birchat Kohanim? It doesn't make any sense they should miss out on Birchat Kohanim. So everyone tries to figure out what, where did that come from? That, that they don't. So the base of Rhyme suggests maybe it came from here because we're not so confident that they're Kohanim. It's not a great answer because we still do it on Yantif and in Eretz Yisrael we still do it. So why, <laughs> why, why is it any, uh, any better to do it sometimes? There's a truth in the Shavos Yaakov where he says that maybe we allow even Suffolk Kohanim to do it. And the reason for that is that while a non-Kohen is not allowed to give Berchat Kohanim, but on the other hand, a Kohen who does not give Berchat Kohanim is in violation of an Asay as well. So it's sort of you messed up if you do, you messed up if you don't. So we have to just go with the, with the Chazaka. Uh, the Pischei Tshuva suggests that maybe, maybe the Isser for a uh, non-Kohen to do Berchat Kohanim is only B'Shem HaMufarish. And maybe it's not really an Isser. If it's a non-Kohen that does Berchat Kohanim, and that's why we're allowed to take the chance, which is a big chiddush, to say that it's only B'Shem HaMuforest. And uh, so therefore, technically, if I, I'm not a Kohen, technically, uh, you know, if, uh, if an Amaretz Yisrael decides to go up and uh, do Berchat Kohanim, so that's going to be okay. That's what the Pesachi Tshuva suggests as a possibility. Bottom line is, when it comes to this, uh, this fellow, we have to verify, first of all, how belie- we didn't even get to discuss the, uh, the mother's situation, but how he knows that his mother was not uh, with a non-Jewish man previously, although I don't think you have to make the assumption about people that they were with a non-Jewish man unless there's reason to make that assumption. So we have to just verify that uh, it's a reasonable assumption that she was with a non-Jewish man. We would have to uh, verify how he knows that the third husband is a Kohen, and then we have to rely on Ramosha Feinstein. Because if you're not going to rely on Rav Moshe Feinstein, he's a mamzer. So we have to rely on, on Rav Moshe Feinstein. And then we can say he's a Kohen. And uh, that can rebuild the whole yichus now that he's a religious Jew. So he can rebuild the whole yichus of Zerah Aaron HaKohen from, uh, from many generations. Okay, so I guess we're going to have to uh, leave it uh, unanswered about what to do with the female dog. And with the... What's that? So it would be, I don't know if you have to prove that he wasn't a chalal. You know, usually when the questions about kahuna are asked, people want to be a chalal, sadly. Because why does it come up normally? Someone fell in love with a divorced woman or with a giores or with a non-Jew who's going to convert. So he wants to be a chalal because he wants to be able to marry her. So in those cases, there are some poskim that will work very hard to make him a chalal. But typically speaking, I don't think we... Uh, first of all, that may not be a wise thing to do anyway, because I've seen many times where they say, oh, don't worry, you're a chalal, because your grandmother went through the Holocaust, so she was a shavuya, and a shavuya is always becheskas that they uh, were ma'aneser, so your whole family is only chalalim, so don't worry about it. And then all of his brothers are like, wait a second, we, 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 you just took away our whole... Uh, how could it be? He's not a Kohen and we are a Kohen and you're taking away our whole Kuna? It's, it's very bad for... Uh, but there are, there are very Chashver Rabbanim that, that, that have that uh, practice. I don't think you have to work hard to prove that he's not a Chalom.
Yeah, so that's also a question. To what extent do we rely on DNA evidence? Which is a whole big topic, but uh, assuming that DNA evidence is like a, it's a super rov, rov bilas achrabal is a rov, but, uh, but DNA evidence might be, might be a stronger rov, right? But not all roves are created equal. 51% is a rov and 99.9% is a rov. So it could be the stronger of the, of the two roves. Okay, so let's say, is it too late to take questions? Or should we? Does anyone want to ask questions? Anybody? <laughs> no, if you hold like Rav Moshe, he's not a mamzer because it means that his mother was never married. Because she never had chuppah the kiddushin. She only had civil marriage. Yes. So that's the question. What does he mean by that? Right? Even though I'm not a Kohen, what does he mean by that? So the Rishonim were all bothered by that. You have to go through all the answers. That's difficult because it's against the Halach. The question is, what's the Ras Mother that answers him? I think he said he's a Kohen. I think he did say he's a Kohen. He looked into the situation a little more than I did, obviously. But I think he said he's a Kohen in the end. What's the case from Yeah, so there is a difference. In Shulchan Aruch it says that to neuter a male dog or a male animal is an Isidaraisa. To neuter a female or to spay a female animal is an Isidarabana. So it is a lower level Isid. But we don't violate Isidarabana either. However, there's also machlokas in the Gemara, and it's machlokas in Rishonim, and it's machlokas in Shulchan Aruch, whether this Isser applies to non-Jews. Can you ask a non-Jew, if a non-Jew does it, is, I mean, is a non-Jew allowed to neuter an animal? So if you assume that a non-Jew is allowed to do it, so when you ask a non-Jew to do it for you, that's amira la'akum on an Isser drabana, right? If the non-Jew is not allowed to do it, and you ask a non-Jew to do it for you, then it's lifnei daraisa, because you're causing them to violate uh, an isn. So, uh, in, in, I, I think the standard practice in these kinds of cases is to sell the dog to a non-Jew and have that non-Jew bring it to a non-Jewish vet so that it's, you're totally removed from it. And they're relying on the idea that uh, it's not lifnei because... Non-Jew is not, not Mitzvah. I think that's typically what people would do in that case. And it's much, much better that it's a female and not a, uh, not a male. That would be okay, yeah. Uh, in fact, when people tell me they want to get a dog, first I tell them don't. Uh, then uh, if they refuse to listen, I actually had one case, someone came to me and they, they wanted to discuss having more children because they said it's just too much to handle the children that they have already. They said their kids are impossible. It's just too much. So we spoke about it. We said, okay, we'll wait a little bit longer. Then they came back a couple of months later, and they said, uh, so we want to buy a dog. So like, what do we have to do when we buy a dog? I said, a dog? Have a kid? Don't have a dog. A dog is going to take as much work as a child. So, uh, so they actually listened. They had a, they had a child. So, like, every time I see that little kid running around the neighborhood, I say, you could have been a dog. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I actually listened. I, I was embarrassed to tell the story at first until uh, the fellow uh, said to me recently, he said, remember, Rabbi, when you told us <laughs> to have a child instead of a dog? So, uh, but, but when people are going to get a dog, I always tell them, make sure it's pre-neutered. 
because you don't want to have it's such a serious shayla. And in general, for B'day Torah, it's not something you should be doing. Look, if you have a, a, a child with special needs who they say the animal is very helpful for children with special needs, or you have this kind of situation where it's his stepdaughter who is having issues religiously, so then you find kulas. But in a regular situation, Better not. Better, you know, why, 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 why do you need to get involved in such things? Was it? Thank you. Oh, pleasure. Oh, for sure, Lecharchila would not be forget. This is anything but Lecharchila, though. This is. The man's a 40 year old man. He, his mother is long dead, probably. It's not about her getting married. So there's no get. There's a, well, no. What? No, no, no. That's bidia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be bidia. No, lechachila means that if the people are still there, you you make sure they give a get. Yeah. And everyone does that. Everyone is machmed to make sure that he gives a get if we can, right? Not to rely, but remote, but yeah, afterwards, once a child is born, yeah, yeah, that's for sure, but yeah, for sure, for sure. He says not to give a get? That's not the practice at all, but they did, as far as I know. Oh, not to do bakashas. That's a very good question. Did anyone ask any of the Rabbanim here? Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Is it a Dava Ruchani? Probably. Yeah. Right, you're allowed to be Meshadeh Chabanos actually. Right? That's a Dvar Mitzvah. The Gemara says that Cheshbonos Shal Mitzvah Mutal Chazbim B'Shabbos. That uh, you're not allowed to make Cheshbonos in general. You're not allowed to do uh, monetary dealings and things like that. But you get together in shuls and even to, uh, to figure out how to do Mitzvah. I would think it's Mutal. I would think it's Mutal. For a shidduch, for a shidduch. Oh, like a specific uh, type of shidduch? How much uh, money should be in the bank? How pretty she is? Uh, like <laughs> a specific girl? <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't think it's wise to ask for a specific. It just just stop. I think in general, it's it's unwise to be too specific in our tefillah. Um, sometimes, like to ask for a specific girl might be the worst thing for you. You think that this girl is going to be the, the right thing for you as the only person, but it could be that there's a reason why Hashem makes her not like you and uh, you know and, and run away every time she sees you. Meaning that, that it could be that there's a, that, that it's not it's not really meant. I'm not saying you. I'm sure, that, but you know, it's it's not really it's not really meant. Sometimes we daven for things, and uh, you know, Rosh always tells us that Salvechik davened with all of his might that he shouldn't have to uh, that he shouldn't have to go to America. That he should be able to stay in Europe with all of his might. That he should be able to stay in Europe. Can you imagine what would have happened if he would have stayed in Europe? 
we shudder to think what would have happened. Sometimes the things we doubted for, when we get too specific in our tefillos, not not always a great idea. many as you can. It's not, there's no number. No, like based on, should you do more chazerot and move down and learning more dafim, or should you do less chazerot and how many would you think is So I think there are two factors to consider. Um, and every person is different, obviously, but there are two factors to consider. For many people, if, they're, if they get off the program, they'll just fall off and they're not going to learn anymore. And instead, if the choice is to learn or not to learn, it's better to learn. So for a lot of people, it may be better for their learning if they only learned half the amount of material or a quarter of the amount of material and just reviewed it over and over again. But for most people, they won't have the discipline to do that. So if you're not going to have the discipline to do that, then it's much better to stay with the program. But clearly, it's better to know what you learn than not to know what you learn. So clearly, it's better while at the same time pushing yourself. So you know, sometimes someone says, I'm not going to learn that yomi because it goes in one year, out the other. So that's like saying, I, I just spoke the other night in Brooklyn, I said, someone asked me this question, I said, that's like going to the doctor and saying, doctor, every time I eat, I throw up, I can't hold anything down. No food is staying in my system. And the doctor says, mm, you should stop eating. Right? That's not the answer, because if you stop eating, you're going to die, right? So a person says, I, I, Dafyomi goes in one ear out the other, I can't learn Dafyomi. No, the answer is not to not learn. The answer is how to figure out how to keep something in, right? That uh, whether it be just to make one note on each uh, on each page of something that you took out of this stuff, one thing that you're going to remember from this stuff, and sometimes just a little piece of agada, right? You know, it could be uh, uh, for those learning daf yomi now. Sukkah daf yodalid that tefilas and shel tzadikim changes. Hashem's the whole daf is about yados of ochun. I don't know what a yad is. I don't know what tumah is. I don't know what tar is. But I'll remember that tefilas and shel tzadikim is like a pitchfork that it turns something from mitzvah zacharias to mitzvah rachmanus. Right? There are certain things that you could remember. Take away something from each stuff. Try to remember something if you're not going to remember everything. But obviously. It's, uh, it's always better to set up a system where you can actually uh, try to walk away, walk away with something. Just you have to be careful that you're not selling yourself short. A lot of times, person says, "I can only learn one daf," so I'm learning it over and over and over again. You're capable of learning a lot more. People have learned a lot, a lot, a lot more daf. It's it's suggesting that. The non-Jew is not obligated in this, is not included in this isr, and therefore it's amira la amira. So it makes it, it's not about gavran. Not, despite what any briskers will tell you, not everything is about gavran chafza, right? It's just sometimes just about how uh, you know how directly you're involved in the isr. Ah, meaning that there are some isurim that are like result oriented. That we just can't have this result in the world because it's bad if you have this. That that's so you have to look at each isur. Most isurim are not like that. Most isurim are uh, are about not doing it as opposed to not having it uh, done. But you're right. There are certain uh, isurim that are that are like that. <laughs> I wrote a piece in my second sefer about the bracha and schnitzel. Apparently, the whole world disagrees with me, so uh, I shouldn't say. No, I think it was on us. <laughs> I thought, 
the way that I've seen it made, maybe it's made differently in different places, in Israel and America, in different communities. Every time my wife makes a breaded chicken cutlet, the breading is like thick and it's flavorful and it's crisp and it adds so many food type of sensations to the schnitzel. It's a totally different thing. Let, let me ask you, in Hilchus Borer on Shabbos, if you have breaded chicken, you have schnitzel and you have grilled chicken, is it a violation of Borer to, to, to roll pile together to sort them out? Or are they all the same? I don't know. I think it's right. They're different, right? They're very different. Um, I, I, I don't know, but uh, but it is it is something that the whole world. I mean, Rav Nevitzal says like this. Rav Nevitzal says Masechet, but uh, but but it seems the large majority of folks have outvoted uh, Rav Nevitzal. But I still I personally uh, make a misunderstanding. Yeah, because I can't bring myself not. To. I don't know. It, it just makes too much sense to me. Um, okay, we have to stop for our vid, right? Yeah. One more question? Okay. To, to do what? To ask a non-Jew to do the Yisra and to open the door for you? Yes, I would. You shouldn't plan for that. Meaning, you should try not to lock the door, and you know, don't, or go to a hotel that the, the one hotel. There's one hotel in New Jersey. It's actually a decent hotel, and still has uh, hard keys. But uh, but you shouldn't plan for that. But if you're stuck in that situation, then yes. Okay.